Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And from Hosea we read, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Father, as we contemplate your word here, the calling of your servant Matthew, the table that Jesus Christ has set for sinners, pray that we as sinners would join him at that table, that we would rejoice in your word as it speaks to us. Open our hearts to it, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. One of the big differences, I think, between an author like Matthew and someone like, for example, Paul or Peter, uh, is that writers of Gospels, we don't have as good a sense of their personality as we do authors of epistles, right? When you read the epistles of the New Testament, you can come away with a sense for who these guys were, how they spoke, their experiences. With the Gospels, we have less information. We, We know less about the lives of the authors of the Gospels, but also in the Gospels, they reveal less about themselves. They tell us less. And so here in this passage, we get a rare glimpse into the life of Matthew, but it's not much of a glimpse. It's a moment in which Matthew is called that he recounts for us, as the other synoptic Gospels do. He does it, interestingly, a little more succinctly than the others do. But as we contemplate our text, although it is brief, there are some interesting things that happen here. We see first Jesus calling Matthew to follow him, and Matthew immediately answering the call. He follows Jesus, and that leads to the next scene where we find Jesus at the table. And at that table, uh, Matthew's fellow tax collectors and sinners are gathered That gathering, that socializing, that hospitality of Jesus results in this challenge from the Pharisees. They don't like what they see. They have a question. They bring that question to the disciples of Jesus. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? That's the question. Then Jesus answers them, and he answers them by giving them a metaphor, this thing about physicians and and the job of the physician. It's not to heal the well. It is to heal the sick. So Jesus here, through that metaphor, explains the nature of his ministry. But he does something else. He also cites this passage from Hosea. It's kind of sandwiched in there. 
uh, between the, the metaphor and the clear explanation of what the metaphor means, he gives us what, what appears at first to be a kind of proof text. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he gives it to them in a pointed way. And he says, go and learn what this means. Go, go study the scriptures and figure out what these words mean and then come back to me with your objections. And that's our text in a nutshell. We're going to go deeper on three points. First, Matthew's call and what the call can teach us. Secondly, the Pharisees' objection and what that objection reveals, the substance of it. And then finally, we'll talk about Christ's table. Who's at the table, who's not at the table, and why. We'll start by looking at the call of Matthew and what we can learn from the details and and the results of that call. Because Matthew's call, although it is brief, is in a form that we can recognize because it reflects the way that we too have been called to Christ. Right? Jesus' call to us comes to us while we are in our sin. And the right response to that call is to follow him. Matthew tells us briefly what happens. He introduces himself as a character. There's a man named Matthew here, and he's sitting at the tax booth. This is probably a customs house that he's sitting in. Uh, The tax collectors here are probably what we might think of as like customs officials. They're the people who uh, exact levies, tolls on the goods as they travel. And remember, Jesus has traveled outside across the lake, outside the realm of Herod, to the land of the Gadarenes, Gentile country, and then he's traveled back to Caesarea to his, his base of operations. And so it makes sense that as he does this, he might encounter some of these officials, these tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus sees Matthew there at the table, and Jesus calls Matthew. And interestingly, Matthew bookends these two events, the, the objection to Jesus eating with sinners and his own calling, it's like a one-two punch. It's that way in the other Gospels as well. These things go together, even though they seem like separate incidents. In the grouping of them together, there's something really subtle but profound that I think is one of these rare moments where Matthew reveals something about himself, about his character, because he tells the story of his calling, Jesus calls him, And then he has Jesus explaining what kind of people he has come to call. And they're sinners. Not the righteous, not the well, but the sick, the sinners. That's who I've come to call. And we've just seen him call the author of this text. As if Matthew suddenly is saying, I'm one of them. We can read this text in a way as Matthew's confession of sin and faith. That he tells the story of how he came to Christ, and in that story, it is Christ who does everything. And Matthew, who's the sinner, the sick man, who is in need of a physician. Matthew was called, and it's as simple as this, he says, Matthew rose and followed him. It's interesting, if you flip over to Luke, and you read in Luke 5 how Luke describes this, he adds another detail about Matthew. He says that in order to do this, Matthew left everything. Unlike fishermen who could follow Jesus and continue to fish, in order to follow Jesus, Matthew had to turn his back on his profession. 
He had to walk away from the life that he had created, and he did that. He sacrificed everything. Luke tells us that. Matthew doesn't. Matthew doesn't say what he sacrificed in order to answer the call. He just says that he rose and he followed. It's almost as if he's minimizing his own sacrifice so that he can maximize and emphasize all that he gained in following Christ. If you've wondered why it is that tax collectors are so despised, but let's be honest, you've never wondered that. You know why they're so despised, because they continue to be despised, but these are despised in a slightly different way than tax collectors are now. As they say, these tax collectors are like customs officers. So when you bring goods from one jurisdiction to another, you have to pay a tax, an excise on those goods. How much do you have to pay? Well, that depends on the tax collector. He looks at what you're bringing, and he decides how much you're going to pay, and he makes his living based on how much he collects. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of self-interest here. You have good reason to extract high penalties, maybe uneven ones. You might pay more this time bringing the same things across the line than you did last time. You might pay more than the guy in line before you. You might pay more because the tax collector has bills to pay. It's a very unjust way of doing things. That's part of the reason why these men were despised. They were enriching themselves at the cost of others. But they were also working on behalf of the regime. They were exploiting their own people so that they could pay not only themselves, but also the oppressive occupying powers that ruled. So it was natural that people felt about these men the way that they did. They were outcasts in society. They exploited their own people. And so good people of that time looked down their noses on them. Pharisees, people who in their hearts were representative of all that was best in the people, had contempt for those who exploited the people. Good people then perceived these tax collectors the way uh, loan sharks or payday loan predators are perceived by good people today. A similar kind of situation. Matthew was one of them. Matthew was one of the people who was exploiting those around him for his own gain and for the regime. He was one of the sinners that the Pharisees despised. And it is striking that it is in that moment that Jesus calls him. It is while he's seated at the table of the tax collectors in the booth that Jesus calls him. If you remember, when we looked at the the passage right before this about Jesus healing the paralytic, you remember the order in which Jesus works. He says, first, your sins are forgiven, and then rise and walk. Something similar happens here. Jesus goes up to one of the sinners in the midst of his sin as he's doing the work of exploitation, and he says, follow me. He catches him at his worst moment when he's doing something he should be ashamed of and Jesus calls him right there. 
Not after he's cleaned up his act. Not after he's realized, wait a second, what I'm doing is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. That's not how it goes. Matthew doesn't show any any change of heart. He doesn't have a a guilty conscience. He isn't there at the toll booth saying, you know what, I've had enough. This is it, I'm done. And then walk away and bump into Jesus. He is in the midst of his tax collecting. He is literally sitting at the booth doing the work. You could think of better ways to recruit apostles, surely. Jesus had followers. Jesus had people following him, attempting to live his words. Jesus could have looked out across a sea of disciples, and he could have said, you know what? You seem like you are especially advanced. I will make you one of my 12. That's not what he does. He doesn't look at the people who are already on the path. Instead, he goes and he finds the most unworthy candidate. Just like Saul on the Damascus road, Matthew is called by Jesus when it seems like he would be the worst candidate. He has plucked out of his sin and made a disciple by the call of Jesus. And what is true for Matthew is true for you as well. What is true for Matthew is true for all of the sinners around you as well. Why should we ever think that before Jesus can call us, we first have to clean up our act? Why, reading how Jesus does things, would we ever think that somehow being good enough was a precondition to Jesus choosing us and saying, follow me? Why would we ever think that our sin the way that we have exploited one another would somehow disqualify us from following him when clearly this is the way that Jesus calls people to follow him. And if Jesus calls us this way, then take it a step further and ask yourself, why would you ever think that the sinners around you should have to get their lives right first? If you didn't have to, why should you expect it of them? If you were called in the midst of your sin, how could you ever look around at the body of Christ and say to yourself, man, these people are not following Jesus as they should. Some of them are out-and-out sinners. What are they even doing here? When you see how Jesus calls people, these questions suddenly are off the table, because this is what he does. He finds us at our worst moment. He finds us when we're doing what we shouldn't be doing, and he calls us. And he declares, you will be my disciple, even though we've done nothing to justify those expectations. That's who Matthew is. Jesus doesn't call only the good ones. We should never think to ourselves, only the good ones need to hear about Jesus. Those who are called, like Matthew, should follow. And those who are called, like Matthew, should also call those who are with them to Christ's table. Immediately after the call of Matthew, we find Jesus at the table. And surprise, surprise, the people there are other tax collectors. I wonder how that happened. Who was it that had this this contact in the tax-collecting community? 
but invited all of these people. Well, I think we can assume that it was Matthew. That these tax collectors come to the table with Jesus thanks to Matthew's influence as one of them. Which is interesting because it means that when Jesus chose Matthew, he didn't say to himself, wow, there must be something special about me. I must not be like the other tax collectors. Maybe like Jesus saw something in me that, that was unique, that distinguished me from them. So I will rise and follow him. No. The way that Matthew seems to react here suggests that he understands he is undeserving. He understands that he is just like the sinners who were there at the tax collecting table with him. And because he is just like them, he has hope for them. Because if there was hope for him, then there was hope for them too. And so his reaction isn't to look down his nose on them. He doesn't cross the line and join the Pharisees and say, well, I guess I am no longer one of them. Instead, in common feeling with them, he brings them to Jesus. And in that simple act, he models for us how we ought to be as well. Jesus chose you. He called you to follow him because he loves you. But never think that that means you're somehow better than all the sinners around you. That he saw in you some unique, distinctive quality that makes you a step above and gives you the right to look down your nose at others. Just the opposite. Instead, when Jesus reveals his love for you, it should lead you to think, if there's hope for me, there could be hope for all of them. I will bring them to him. And let them know that they are welcome at his table. We should all be like Matthew here. We should all share the grace that we have been given. Not hoard it, not keep it to ourselves, even to cherish it. Instead, we should share it. Don't be content to come to Jesus' table alone. Bring all the sinners who are with you. Bring all the sinners who are like you. To meet Jesus at his table. And you will find that like you, they are welcome. That's what Matthew's call can teach us. But now I want to think about the objection of the Pharisees. Because they're Pharisees, it's easy for us, before they even open their mouths, to know, "Uh uh-uh, these guys are going to be wrong. It never does happen where the Pharisees say something and Jesus is like, oh, guys, you have a point. I mean, I will take that under advisement. I will course correct. Thank you. That doesn't happen. So we automatically know whatever we're about to hear is not the way you want to think. But knowing that, I want to live with it a little bit and just try to understand where they're coming from because the substance of their objection really reveals something. If you're a Pharisee, I mean, imagine as sympathetically as you can, how they must see this situation, right? I'm trying to keep God's law. And part of keeping his law is distancing myself from those who flaunt it, of separating myself from people who have contempt for his law. Being obedient is so much easier when I'm not running with those who are disobedient. And yet you, Jesus, are gathering with them. I can't even come to your table without them being there. 
Like, I want to be righteous. I want to follow you. But, but how can I do that if in order to approach you, I have to, to, to get through like a cordon of sinners? Jesus is hosting this meal. But obviously, he's not doing it at his own house. He's already told us the Son of Man doesn't have a house. He borrows houses on this earth. He may be borrowing, in this case, uh, Simon's house. He's healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and that house seems to be a kind of a base of operations for this period in his ministry. But it's more likely that this particular hosting event is happening at Matthew's house. In the other Gospels, we're told that Matthew immediately has a kind of feast in which he invites people in to eat with Jesus. You can imagine the Pharisees and scribes in the larger orbit of people who are following Jesus in that that kind of crowd. And now it's time to eat. You've been called to the table, but as you go in as a conscientious Pharisee, as a, a conscientious scribe, you see all of these sinners going in too, and that's a problem because you can't maintain your righteousness and break bread with these people who are unclean, who are not preserving their own righteousness, so you are forced to hold back. Uh, the word for these people in Greek is hamartaloi. Uh, hamartia is sin, and so the sinners are the hamartaloi, and this is a, a term of insult. It's not just a theological category for people. It's sort of a way of ranking the non-righteous. So if you don't keep the law, if you don't keep it well, if you consort with the Romans, if you do bad jobs like tax collecting, there's a whole lot of things you can do which in the mind of a Pharisee will make you one of the hamartaloi, and they don't mix with you. They separate themselves from you out of their desire to live righteously. So this is why they ask the question, why is he doing this? There's a holier-than-thou implication, obviously, uh, why, if you are this great rabbi, if you are this, this miracle worker who apparently can not only heal but has the power to forgive sin, why, as a forgiver of sin, do you consort with sinners? Explain that one to us. It's as if they think they're keeping a higher standard than Jesus is. We'll see in the next section of this chapter, the disciples of John have a similar question about fasting, like why Jesus doesn't uphold the standard of fasting the way that the Pharisees and the disciples of John do. But in that instance, their question is sincere, and Jesus answers them with consideration, a a directness that he doesn't have here. Here, there's more of a rebuke in the tone because I think he senses the insincerity of the objection that is being raised. Note here, too, where the objection is being addressed. We saw earlier in the chapter scribes objecting to Jesus healing sin, but not to his face. Not even out loud, but in their minds. And then Jesus calls them out because he knows their thoughts. Here, they're a little bolder. They're willing to put their objections into words, but not to his face, to his disciples. They kind of go where they think Jesus won't hear this, and they ask his followers what's up with him. But of course, Jesus hears it and addresses it. They're not yet willing to criticize him to his face, but soon enough, they will be. Jesus answers them basically by saying, these are sick and so they need me. If you're asking why these people are at my table, I'm the physician. Physicians heal sick. So when you come to my table, you should expect the people there to be sick people because that's 
is who needs me. If you're well, what are you doing here? That's the gist of it. There's actually two ways that Jesus answers this, although it may not be apparent at first. Right? The primary answer is the, the metaphor of the physician, which he then explains at the end, that he's come to call sinners, not the righteous. Right? The implication is, sure, Jesus is keeping a, a rough table, this rough company at the table, but it's because he's the physician of sin. And, of course, you're going to have sinners at his table because they are the ones who need him. People who are whole do not need him. People who are righteous do not need him. So the implication is that those who are at the table are the ones who need him. And we could take it a step further and say that those who are righteous, like the Pharisees, do not need to be at the table. That would surely be one of the the possible conclusions they could draw. I get it. You can't come to the table because it would make you unclean, but the table's not for you. It's just for sinners. You don't need to worry about this. That would be a conclusion you could draw if it were not for that, that second thing that he inserts between the two. So you have the metaphor, you have the explanation at the end, but then between them, there's that go and learn what this means. And then he cites this phrase, which is quoting words of God recorded by the prophet Hosea. Says, go and learn what this means. And if they do that, if they go back and they look at that text, they're going to find something uh, that's not going to be comforting. They're going to discover that they are not well. They're going to discover that the sense of superiority that they feel is actually another symptom of, of another kind of sickness. If you go back to Hosea Chapter 6, verse 6, see, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. That's the line that Jesus quotes. Steadfast love, there is a hesed. It's, it's God's covenant-keeping love uh, carried over into Greek as mercy. Mercy often used synonymously in the New Testament with love. I desire love, mercy, not sacrifice. I desire, we might say, Faith from the heart, not just outward observance. Because in the second line, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is a poetic expression in Hebrew poetry. uh, The poetry doesn't rhyme. The way that the poetic effect is created is through repetition. This is why when you read Hebrew poetry, it sometimes feels like you just read a verse, and then the next verse just said the same thing but with different words. And you're confused. Well, no, that's intentional. That's poetry. Sometimes the exact same idea is restated in different words. Sometimes the restatement will expand the idea. Sometimes the restatement will contradict what went before, make it complicated. We run into that sometimes in the Proverbs, but that's an aspect of Hebrew poetry. In this case, we get a synonym. So, I desire steadfast love, or I desire knowledge of God, rather than sacrifice, rather than burnt offerings. So you can see the two columns. What God wants is steadfast love. He wants mercy. He wants knowledge of God to actually know and be known by him, not outward observance. That's the key. But if you keep reading and you look at verse 7, you get quite a jolt. After making this observation about what I prefer, God states this preference, I prefer that you come to me with a faithful heart, not just outward observance, he then says, but like Adam, they transgress the covenant. 
there they dealt faithlessly with me. And that little line, there's a lot to unpack. First of all, isn't it interesting the way that God here characterizes his relationship with Adam? He describes it as a covenant. If you go back to the book of Genesis, the word covenant, berith, is not used there in, let's say, Genesis 1 through 3 to describe that relationship. But God does retroactively describe a covenant that he has with Adam. This is what we call in the Westminster Standards the covenant of works or the covenant of life. According to this covenant with Adam, Adam would have attained glory, glorified life through his obedience. But by breaking that covenant, he forfeited that life for him and for his people. And that meant death for us. That's the significance of Adam's covenant breaking. But here in Hosea, the sins of the people who claim to be the righteous are compared to the sin of Adam. Right? Those who offer sacrifice and burnt offerings, but they do it without faith, they do it without a right heart, are compared to covenant-breaking Adam. Like, this is what you do if what you want is death, is what he's saying. He's making that comparison. They are sinners, in other words. They are dealing faithlessly with God. And yet, the Pharisee's claim to righteousness rests on exactly this ritual observance. The reason why he's righteous and the Hermartaloi are not is that he observes the sacrifices. He keeps the fasts. He does the things that are required of you in order to be righteous, and they don't. And now Jesus is saying, you need to go and learn what this word from God means. And when you do, you will find that the righteousness that you're trusting in isn't righteousness at all. It's just another kind of sin. That in your supposed righteousness, you're actually being faithless to God. That you actually need to be at this rough table with these sinners, because you are one of them. A commentator on this passage writes that the Pharisees represent those who believe that obedience is more important than mercy. That the main thing God wants is obedience, not love. But because God made his covenant with sinners, mercy is more foundational to his message. If you're counting on your righteousness, if you're counting on your obedience, then you need to understand these words. You need to go and learn the meaning of the text that Jesus points us to here because you're getting it wrong. You're trusting in the wrong thing. And Jesus is saying, go and figure this out. Go and learn better. Go and see that you too are a sinner, that you too belong at this table, that you too, when I call you, should follow because you need to be here at this table. That same commentator, speaking of Christ's table, of who's there, who's not, and why, says that the shared meal is a potent sign of Jesus' accepting grace. He writes, reading Matthew's gospel as a whole, we see that Jesus eats with sinners because he accepts sinners where they are. 
even if he does not want them to remain where they are. Encounter, repentance, and faith precede the call for moral change. Jesus constantly describes his standards and calls people to himself, but in the logic of redemption, God's proclamation of love precedes the declaration of law. Jesus never says, get right so that you can follow me. He says, follow me and then rise and walk. His call comes first, and it's predicated on his love. Now you can hear in those words a way of describing the love of Jesus that has two aspects to it. You might say there's, there's an accepting love, and then there's a transforming love, and Jesus has both of those things. Uh, we can love people in an accepting way, uh, meeting them where they're at, as he writes, uh, recognizing that they're sinners and, and not expecting them to be better than they are. Or we can love people in a transformative way. We can want them to be what they ought to be. We can want them to be the best version of themselves. And you've experienced both kinds of love. Right? You've had friends in your life who were happy with you just the way that you were. And it was relaxing. It was a relief sometimes to be in their presence because they weren't judging you and they weren't trying to, to, to raise you up. Like they accepted you. You've also had friends who wanted the best for you, friends you knew that you could disappoint if you didn't live up to their expectations, if you didn't do what you ought to do. And that kind of friendship can inspire you right, to be a better person, to do what you ought to do. Jesus comes to us in love, and Jesus has both of those loves. Jesus comes to us accepting, but also transforming. You can understand why that might be valuable, why that might be welcome. Because the kind of love that accepts you and has no desire to see you transformed, that kind of love can lead to indulgence. It doesn't matter what you do. I don't care. You can be good, you can be bad, whatever. You're cool. You do you, whatever. That kind of love oftentimes is a sort of indifference a lack of care deep down. But you can also imagine the kind of love that has that transformative desire, but without the acceptance. Like, I love you, and I want you to live up to what you ought to be. And if you don't, you shouldn't count on my love. You know how hard it can be to be loved in that way. But Jesus' love has both of these things. He sees us as sinners and calls us in the midst of our sin, but calls us not to remain in our sin, but to be transformed, to follow after him. Yes, to live lives of obedience, but to live them after he has accepted us and begun his work in us. You know what it's like to be loved one way and not the other, but the more pointed thing is you also know what it's like to love one way and not the other. Because we've all been guilty of this with people in our lives. Right? There are people you love, houses, children, friends, that you love one way but not the other. There are some people that you accept and other people that you have standards for. And it's really hard to look past your expectations. There are people who disappoint you constantly. And people you ask nothing of even when what they're doing is destroying themselves. 
If Jesus loves in both kinds, then we as his people should strive to love both ways as well. If you're the kind of person who finds it easy to love in that transforming way and hard to love in that accepting way, then you need to strive to be more accepting. But if it's the other way around, if it's easy for you to accept, but very difficult for you ever to demand transformation, then you need to go in the other direction and learn how to love as Christ does in both ways. None of us at Christ's table is here because we deserve it. Everyone who is at Christ's table is here because he loves them. That's the only reason, because of his love. So we need to love how he loves. And not only that, we need to love who he loves. When you contemplate the table of Jesus Christ, you see at that table his love for sinners. You see the fact that he loves what is unlovable. His table, his hospitality means literally communion. And if you've ever wondered why it is that we talk about this table and we call it communion as a synonym so that in our minds oftentimes if we ask like, like, do you have communion with God? You're like, well, yeah, every Sunday at the end of church we do that as if it means the same thing. But, but this is a picture of communion with God. Communion with God is a face-to-face relation, a knowing of him. And the table symbolizes, represents that communion. People invited to Jesus' table are being invited to commune with God. Because as sinners, our communion with him has been broken by our sin. We were made to live before his face, but because of sin, we do not know him as we should. We dealt falsely with him. And we broke that bond so that there's only one reason to be at Jesus' table. And that is to restore the lost communion between us and our Creator. That is the reason for this. We talk about, well, I, I, I want to, to, to come to Jesus' table so that I can be forgiven of my sins. Yes, but for what? Why? Why do you need the barrier of your sin removed? So that you can see him face to face. So that you can be in his presence. So that you can know him as you were made to know him. That's what he calls you to do. When he says, follow me. He says, come with me. Commune with me. Let me restore to you the the bond that you ought to have with the Father. And when you think about it that way you begin to realize that every objection that we have to coming to his table, every objection that we have to being here, whether we're telling ourselves, look, I have other things to do, or I don't approve of the other people who are there. Uh, I can find my own way. I don't need what is offered at his table. All of these excuses are at heart simply a rejection of God's call to restored communion. Why aren't the Pharisees at the table? Why don't the Pharisees, with all that they've witnessed, all that they've seen, why don't they just go to the table, set their objections aside, and just go and be with him? Because they're not sick. Because they look at themselves and they see no need for it. If anything, it seems like it would be beneath them. 
that it would cost them. That's why they're not there. This is a table that's for worse people than me. Plenty of people believe they are too good to be at Jesus' table. Plenty of people believe they are too smart to gather together with the morons and halfwits who are at Jesus' table. Many people believe that they are too educated to be at the same table with the rubes and, and, and the weirdos that Jesus has called to his table. Many people think that. But that's just another kind of Phariseeism. That's just another way of believing that you are righteous, that you are good enough. Why aren't the sinners there? What, what is it that keeps sinners from coming to the table when called? Because although there are many there, there are many who hold back. Well, maybe in their hearts, they look at themselves and think, I'm too sick. What's at the table wouldn't be enough for me. I see no way to come to the table because it's for better people than me. But deep down, when you compare those answers, really, they're the same. Deep down, everybody who holds back from the table holds back for the same reason. It's because they don't want to be there. It's because they do not desire to be there. They do not want to commune with God at his table. Put it another way, you're not at the table because you think you know better. But Jesus says you don't. The beautiful thing is here, Jesus doesn't say to these Pharisees, you know what, you're fine, you're good, whatever. You don't need to come to the table. This is for sick people, not righteous. Just go about your way and and I'll have less grief and aggravation to deal with. He doesn't say that. Instead, to these people who think they know better than him, to these people who think they are better than him, that they uphold a higher standard than he does, Jesus doesn't write them off. Jesus gives them scripture, and he says, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. Because if you do, if you go and you learn, then you will see your need. If you're stopping short of communion with Jesus, Jesus is saying to you, go and learn what this means, and then hear my call and follow me. He's here for you. This table is for you. He's calling you, and you should follow him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.